I'll sing it. Hey, y'all. Thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. Got a quick little plug here for our new NPR One app. It's where you can hear conversations you won't get anywhere else. This week, NPR's Guy Raz talks to TED curator Chris Anderson for an inside look at the influential conference. Search TED Radio to find it on the NPR One app, along with stories from your local public radio station and more great podcasts. All right, here's the show. It's the NPR Politics Podcast here with our wrap of the week's political news. And whoo, what a week. Ted Cruz out. John Kasich out. Bernie Sanders fighting a steep uphill climb. We'll hear a little from a new NPR interview with Sanders just out today. Then we'll do some listener mail. And as always, we'll end the show with Can't Let It Go, where we all share something that we just can't stop thinking about this week. And stay tuned to the very, very end for a special announcement about seeing the NPR politics team and podcast live. That's happening. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics and the campaign. And I'm Ron Elving, editor correspondent. I liked your woo. <laughs> woo! <laughs> well it delivered. It has been a week. It has, it has been, been a week. week. I mean, yeah. like. <laughs> Not enough to just say wow. Okay. Where do we even start? There are two episodes, if you're not fully caught up, um, one each after Cruz and Kasich dropped out. And in those episodes, we've already talked a bit about the political universe grappling with the reality of Trump as the apparent GOP nominee. And it seems, guys, like the reactions have been varied. Some Republicans are doing things like re-registering or burning their their voting cards or saying they'll vote for Hillary. And others, including some in Congress, are saying they'll support him. It's been really interesting to see the ones that are coming to support Trump that have spoken so badly about him before. Let's see and Nikki Haley. If, uh, yeah, <laughs> Nikki Haley list. amongst others. But like, also, if you're cynical about politics and think they're all lying, like anyway, this just confirms that. You know, the guy they hated now they're going to vote for him for president. It just seems like all of the GOP is in this bind. Either they sit it out and potentially lose the election. Or they totally contradict themselves and support this guy that they haven't liked. Wait, Nikki Haley? Nikki, Nikki Haley has endorsed. So she's, she's the says, governor of South Carolina. She's the governor of South Carolina and a really popular governor. And um, she was very critical of Donald Trump early on um, for, among things, sort of his slow response to um, questions about the KKK. Um, you know, she was very critical of him. He, in response, was very critical of her. I mean, you might remember she gave the State of the Union response uh, to President Obama And it was this year. not so thinly veiled criticism of Donald Trump. Exactly. Yes, and and yep. on some of the immigrant issues as well. She, her background is Indian American, and she has been critical of Donald Trump's anti-immigration or anti-illegal immigration, if you Positions. So wait, wait, wait. She supports him now? She said she that she will be him. voting for him, that she's not interested in the VP slot. I mean, I guess my question, though, is I've seen now a number of um, responses from folks who were very critical of Donald Trump who say that they will vote for him, that they're not endorsing him, but they will vote for him. And maybe, Ron, you can explain, like, what kind of contortion is that? Yeah, but, and Kelly Ayotte, the senator from New Hampshire, precisely. is another one of those. Well, that is the kind of contortion that a politician who needs to placate two groups of people gets into. And in the case of each of these people, they themselves would have preferred another candidate, Marco Rubio, Jeb Bush, whomever, but they also have a lot of Trump voters in their base group of 
people they're going to rely on to be reelected. And in some cases, that's real soon. So if you're Kelly of New Hampshire, you need everybody who's planning to go vote for Donald Trump in New Hampshire next November to also vote for you. And if they don't, you're going to lose because it's a really closely divided state. So she really is in a tough spot. She doesn't want to alienate women by saying she endorses Donald Trump, but she also doesn't want to alienate his voters by saying she's voting for anybody else. So she can't vote for Hillary Clinton. She's got to vote for Donald Trump. It's what's called a dilemma, and it's a bad one. But does she have to vote for either? I mean, I think of the governor, and granted, maybe he's in a bit of a luxe position. The governor of Massachusetts, Republican governor, very, very popular in a deep blue state. He has said he will not vote for Hillary Clinton, and he will not vote for Donald Trump. So who does he vote for? Sits it out, maybe. Mitch McConnell, who is the Republican leader in the Senate, put out a statement that is, I think the right word would be tepid. Hmm. And I, I just want to read that to get him on the record here. He says, quote, I have committed to supporting the nominee chosen by Republican voters. And Donald Trump, the presumptive nominee, is now on the verge of clinching that nomination. Republicans are committed to preventing what would be a third term of Barack Obama and restoring economic and national security after eight years of a Democrat in the White House. As the presumptive nominee, he now has the opportunity and the obligation to unite our party around our goals. Yeah, that gets the Mike Pence Award for... (laughs) You have to explain that. Explain the Mike Pence. Governor of Indiana. Yes. Ozma, you're in Indiana. Tell us about Mike Pence. (laughs) So he came out and gave what we could call, I think, a a very lukewarm endorsement of Ted Cruz in which he praised Donald Trump extensively before saying that he was endorsing Ted Cruz. Well, that endorsement worked well. (laughs) Hey, now. So, I mean, but we do have elected or former elected officials, right? I'm thinking of both Bushes, um, Romney who have said that they are not only uh, not endorsing Donald Trump, but they are not planning to attend the convention. I don't expect to see John McCain there, or if he is there, he'll be asked repeatedly what his position is on Donald Trump, and he doesn't need that. He's got a tough election of his own in Arizona, 30% Hispanic. And just this afternoon, we heard Speaker of the House Paul Ryan, who is the highest-ranking Republican, actually, in the United States government, and he joined the ranks of Republicans who say they can't support Trump yet, which of course means yet, and it leaves the door open for Trump to moderate some of his positions or move a little closer to a standard conventional Republican establishment position and thereby show enough, if you will, reform that they can embrace it. What kind of convention is this going to be? You know, it could be dull. Except no, no, not no it's not going to be dull. Trump's going to pick the speakers. It's not going to be dull. It's going to be. It's going to be a Trump show. Can we get Clint Eastwood again? It's going to be a Trump show. It's going to be a Trump rally from start to finish. I have what does a question. that mean? It, it means, means a lot gonna, of show tunes. It's going to look a lot like the rallies of his that have been filling convention halls and stadia all mm. over America. Sam, let's go back to Tuesday night. You were there at Ted Cruz election night headquarters in Indiana to cover the primary. And I want you to walk us through it simply because... Our, many of our listeners will never have the experience of being in one of these rooms. And I, I I want them to know what it feels like to be there. It feels like super hella sad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was deemed officially by the Cruz campaign their election night watch party. But it really turned out to be anything but a party. Uh, I did a few stories about this. And for me, it felt like a political funeral. It was very, very sad. Uh, the event began at 7 o'clock, which is right around the time that word got out that Cruz had lost the state. But like people were waiting around because they said, 
we're sure that Cruz is going to come out and reassure us and say that he is going to fight to the convention because that's been his line for the last while, right? So I'm talking to folks and they're like giving me what they think Cruz's strategy should be going forward and how it's not over yet and he should push forward. And then around 8, there's rumblings that he might drop out and tweets are going around and you see people realizing this, but no one wants to believe it, right? None of the true believers believe it. I talked to one woman who said, I didn't think it was going to happen until I heard the words come out of his mouth. And we have the words as they came out of his mouth. Literally, there was such shock and surprise in that room. I love each and every one of you. They really do love him. From the beginning, I've said that I would continue on as long as there was a viable path to victory. Tonight, I'm sorry to say, it appears that path has been foreclosed. People could not believe Together, it. I couldn't believe it. We left it all on the field in Indiana. We gave it everything we've got. But the voters chose another path. You guys, as soon as that announcement came out, waterworks. I mean... People were actually crying. Ugly cries. Like, chest-heaving cries. Cries that screw up your makeup. Cries that make strangers hold you in their arms. Like, it was such a sad space. And so, you know, there's the half of the room who is just crying and weeping. Then the other half of the room is at the bar. And, like, Heidi <laughs> Cruz and Ted Cruz are trying to shake hands. And Heidi's being very positive, And she, she's tough as nails. I've never seen her not smiling and, like, not focusing on message. But it's just sad. And so I ended up talking to one of the more prolific criers. Her name is Linda Bond. She said a few things that just really kind of emoted the pain of that room that night. Yes, I am. I've been working in the... I've been working in the Republican Party for 32 years. I have always gotten behind whoever won. And it's the first time ever. I will not be able to do that. And it saddens me that our party has become just like everybody else. You know, after this thing happened, in the way that you do, do after funerals sometimes, people stuck around for a long time. Like the room didn't clear out until after 10 or later. And you could tell folks were just having to grieve this thing out together, right? And I don't know if it was the alcohol or something else, but about two dozen cruise supporters went to the middle of this space, faced the flags behind the podium, put their right hands on their hearts, and began to sing the national anthem. It's touching. I mean, I, I mean that seriously. That they would go and do that at the end of an evening like that, uh, I think is meaningful. That it tells you something about who they are. And I also think that you know, for so many in this campaign, Ted Cruz was the butt of a joke. You know, he was a Zodiac killer. He, you know had a weird thing on his lip during the debate. He had a punchable face. But, like, for people that support Ted Cruz, he meant a lot to them. You know, I remember chasing around after Jesse Jackson the first time he ran for president in 1984. And he was on the campus at uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison. And he had given a speech in an auditorium. And I saw young white kids come out of that auditorium. And one particular young man was literally jumping up and down as high as he could jump and down and as high as he could and down and shouting, Jesse 
Jackson, Jesse, <laughs> Jackson. And it was a perfect illustration of what you're talking about. Some of these people, just uh, some of all of us, perhaps in some measure or another, attach ourselves to these political personae as though they were rock stars or sports stars or some other kind of celebrity. And that then becomes all the more important to us because this isn't sports. No, this, this is real life people. entertainment. This is real life. And we really think that in some sense or another, this one individual politician is different from all the others yeah. and is truly going to save us, at which point it does take, to take on almost a religious dimension. Yes. Oh, lots of folks talked about the Bible and God's choice. And the most poignant thing, perhaps, at the end of their singing of, of the national anthem, a few folks shelled out 2020, 2020. They want him to run again. Absolutely. And he probably will. If the electorate has not completely realigned itself by then. Well, and that is our next topic. So, Ron, let's just establish why it is that we are now going to talk about the most likely scenario, which is a Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton general election. Because the time is running out and the runway is shortening every week. Uh, Bernie Sanders continues to appeal to a very, very large swath of the Democratic Party. In national polls, he runs pretty much dead even. There are even a few that show him a nose ahead of Hillary Clinton in popularity. But the name of the game, as we have said all along, and this is just simply the nature of the way this is done, is to get committed delegates to go to the Philadelphia Convention. Hillary Clinton has 800 more of those than Bernie Sanders does. By winning in Indiana, perfectly legitimate and respectable mid-sized primary state, Bernie Sanders picked up something like six or seven net delegates. That's not going to put a dent in 800. He says, you can't count the superdelegates. Okay, let's throw out every single superdelegate. Every single one. He's still behind by 300 delegates. There simply isn't enough runway, even if he wins California, even if he wins Oregon, even if he wins every other event from now on. And so what he's doing is perfectly legitimate. Hillary did it herself eight years ago. She can't criticize him for it. He is running out his string. He is keeping his campaign alive, keeping his campaign supporters inspired, and keeping the fundraising going, which is also important. He was on Morning Edition today with Steve Inskeep. Steve asked him about this very thing, and here's the tape. Well, we're going to stay in until the last vote uh, is counted, and that will be in the primary in, in Washington, D.C. June 14th. Uh, that's right. We think that, you know, I don't maybe I'm old-fashioned, but I think that the people of every state in this country, including the largest state in America, California, I should have a right to cast their votes as to who they want to see as president of the United States and what kind of agenda uh, they want the Democratic Party uh, to have. Uh, we won last night in Indiana. That is our 18th state. Uh, we're going to fight in West Virginia. I think we got a shot to win there. So we got a good shot to win in, in uh, Oregon. Uh, and I think we got a good shot to win in California and some other states. So we, we are in this race to the last vote is cast. Okay. Um I would like to have a conversation now about the general election that most likely involves Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And Asma, this one's you. The demo <laughs> this is this is a question about demographics. So one big thing I think that's helpful to know from the get-go is that the white population or the white share of the electorate is shrinking and it's expected to be smaller than it ever has been in in documented American history. So it was 72 percent of the electorate in 2012. It's expected this year to be somewhere around 70 percent, even lower than that. Um, And and that means that minorities, be they, you know, Latinos, Asian-Americans, African-Americans, a mix, that that share of the population is going to be higher 
higher than it ever has been. Um, so I think that's sort of step one of where we even look at and sort of understand what's happening here. And that's helpful, I think, because we've seen so far how Donald Trump has done in a Republican primary. And he's done phenomenally well. And but- we just need to establish that a Republican electorate is an extremely white place. Extremely white. It's uh, more heavily dominated by men than women. And so when he is able to pull off these victories, thus far, he's been able to build a fairly broad coalition of white voters. Um, We can see that in states like Indiana, New York, Florida. But he's also been banking substantially on white blue collar voters. They are a substantial share of the electorate. They're probably going to be about a third of the electorate this year around. But keep in mind, they were half of the electorate back in Ronald Reagan's time. So they're just a much smaller share of the the electorate than they were. The Ronald Reagan period makes an interesting comparison, because when Ronald Reagan won re-election in 1984, which was the last really huge blowout election in American history, he won 60 percent of the Anglo white vote, that is the non-Hispanic white vote, in his 49-state blowout. (laughs) 49 states. And you know what? He almost won Minnesota, too. That would have made it 50. So he did that with 60 percent of the white vote. So you hear Republicans say, we just need to go back to Ronald Reagan. We just need to do what he did in the white vote. Well, Mitt Romney in 2012 got 59 percent of the white vote. In other words, he was within one percentage point of matching Ronald Reagan among non-Hispanic white voters. Okay, And what did Mitt Romney do? Well, he's not president. No, he was not. He lost (laughs) three-fifths. He lost three-fifths of the Electoral College. It was not a close election. It was a three-to-two Electoral College election. And, you know, he won 62 percent among white males. So... How much better can Donald Trump do than that? Can he get to 65% of white males? Can he get to 70% of white males? Because that's what he's going to have to do when you consider where he will be among minority voters, I would submit worse than Mitt Romney, and where he will be with white women voters, I would submit again somewhere around 50-50. So I would say of the coalitions that you're speaking of, many of them are already key parts of the Democratic Party. So women, they already tend to vote more for the Democratic candidate, and that's been happening since the 1980s. Um, The question is maybe Hillary Clinton could win women by a larger margin, and that could be helpful to her. But same thing for African Americans and Latinos. I also think that, you know, where she does need to do well is she does need white men. I mean, I I was saying this the other day to a friend of mine, it's sort of a joke, but I was like, white men are the swing vote. I mean, they are really fundamentally the swing vote this election cycle. Because if you look at all these other demographics, they have historically lined up with the Democratic Party. Clinton needs, I mean, a, I would say above 30 percent. Right, Ron? Is that sort of according the According to the formula that I just laid out, which, of course, is nothing but a proposition, a, a formula that might apply based on all the other elections in our lifetime. And if that formula were to apply, anything over 30 percent among white men, men only, mm-hmm among whites, would seem to put her in a very strong position because she is going to do a little better among white women just because she's a Democrat, set aside the fact that she is the first woman this close to the presidency. And it seems there is every reason to believe that the Obama coalition of minority groups, including Asians who had previously kind of leaned Republican, is going to be replicated. Now, maybe Donald Trump can overcome all of the hostility that has been engendered thus far by his campaign. Maybe he can overcome all that. He may very well choose either a Hispanic or an African-American to be his running mate. I would not be at all surprised to see him do that. But unless he can overcome the current animosity, 
he is going to get crushed among minorities, and that will reproduce the Obama coalition that won two national elections. I have Can a I question. Oh, go ahead. Um, both of these candidates, Trump and Clinton, have some of the highest unfavorable ratings ever for candidates for president. Ever. Do unfavorables that high drive turnout up or down? Down. They do. They <laughs> down? Drive it, yeah. They drive yes. it down. Yeah, this and could be super that is, grim. This is, this is, this is, that's why negative advertising works, because it suppresses the vote. And when you suppress the vote, generally speaking, the hardest core turnout people are the people who determine the election. And in this instance, you know, we, we, we've talked already a lot about expanding, if you will, the electorate. Generally speaking, in political science, the assumption is if you're counting on people who haven't voted before, people who do that are called losers. <laughs> if they haven't voted before, the strongest evidence is all preponderance of evidence is they're going to continue their streak. Huh. But I think the other thing that's interesting, though, about this is I think we could see massive realignment this general election season. Of which groups? Of, okay, so I was reading this amazing New York Times analysis this morning on demographics, and they had suggested that by looking at some of the hypothetical poll matchups, so I know these are hypotheticals, right, between Clinton and Trump in April, they could see college-educated voters going, that college-educated voters, Obama lost them by, I believe, four points in 2012. Traditionally Republican. And they could go for 29-point margin of victory to Hillary Clinton, hypothetically. Even though Trump did well with them in the primaries. Only some of the primaries. Only some of the primaries. I mean, he still lost post-grad voters in uh, Tuesday's primary in Indiana. That's a group he was not able to capture. Um, He also says that this uh, demographic analysis suggested that there could also be a big alignment in voters who make over $100,000. To who? uh, To the Democratic candidate. Really? Yeah. Well, Obama won among the poorest and the richest. Yeah. Which was very unusual. (laughs) Let's just say it's early days. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to have listener mail and can't let it go. We'd like to say a quick thank you and share a message from one of our sponsors, United Health Group, who asks, how can we really improve health care? Bring back the house call? Open walk-in clinics in convenient places? Help more moms get prenatal care? or use technology to find insights that lower healthcare costs. Maybe help doctors spend more time with patients, not paperwork. What if we did all of this and more? Because it's all connected to better care, and better care means better health. United Health Group, built for better health. Learn more at unitedhealthgroup.com. Hey, y'all. Sam again. If you like our show, then get ready for the new NPR podcast, Code Switch. It's hosted by my friends and play cousins, Gene Demby and Shireen Marisol Miraji. Code Switch is all about how race and identity crash into everything in our lives, from music to sports to food and, yes, politics, which is so true. Uh, Gene and Shireen and their colleagues on the Code Switch team will make you laugh, and they will always keep it real. Code Switch will be out later this month. Make sure you check it out wherever you get your podcast or on the NPR One app. All right, back to the show. All right, we are back. One thing that we get a lot of mail about is whether we think Bernie Sanders will run as an independent. Quick reality check. He is called an independent. He has been a democratic socialist who calls himself an independent in the Senate. But he has also said many times he does not want to be responsible for helping Donald Trump be elected president. Says that can never happen, should never happen. So I would bet no. And his wife, Jane Sanders, has said they do not want to be the spoiler. He will not run as an independent. 
Um, And now a letter from Liam, who wrote, This is something I can't let go. How did Cruz and especially Kasich become the ones left standing against Trump while the other candidates suspended their campaigns early by comparison? It would seem that someone like Rubio or Paul would have had a much better chance at a contested convention instead of what the Republicans are facing now, which, of course, game over. I mean, I think for Cruz, he had the best operation. He knew how to get delegates. He was very well organized. He had a good campaign structure. Under the hood, that was a great campaign. Yeah, yeah. And let's not forget, I mean, he won Iowa. He was clearly courting a base of Republican voters and seemed to do that, you know, fairly consistently, though somewhat sporadically throughout the campaign. Now, Ron, solve the John Kasich mystery. John Kasich is probably pretty well qualified to be president in terms of having been governor of a big state and a very prominent congressman and did a lot of really pretty solid things when he was in the House. But he wasn't selling himself very well. He didn't stick to a script. So then why did he stay in? I guess, was he more stubborn than Marco Rubio and Jeb Bush? Or he had enough money to stay in? I believe he may very well have been raising a flag. Not that he will take it if it's offered, but I think he was raising a flag suggesting that perhaps if the party was looking for somebody to suggest as a vice presidential running mate, or if the party were looking for someone to nominate in the face of a total meltdown in Cleveland, which no longer seems to be in the cards, He thought we might as well hang around and see if there was anything to pick up when everyone else had gone home. Here's a letter uh, from a listener named Alexi in Finland. Alexi writes, in Finland, there's recently been major news outlets running stories on why Sanders can't win, even though he is for these good things that actually seem to work in many countries. What do you think are the reasons that such political issues as tuition-free education, paid maternity leaves, universal health care, etc., aren't more popular in the U.S. mainstream politics? Uh, because they're Finnish. Uh, <laughs> look, I, I know that, that's, that's that, that. Look, I'm a Scandinavian and I utterly empathize with the Finns. But all of these Scandinavian kinds of social programs, socialism, which it would be embraced as in much of Europe, people would say, yeah, I'm a socialist. In our country, that has not been part of the mainstream conversation. Bernie Sanders is making it part of that conversation. Well, and let me just toss out there that these ideas are not actually unpopular. If you look at polling, something like paid family leave has overwhelming support. It's just not a top ballot box kind of an issue. That's right, especially because in those countries, people are accustomed to paying 60, 70 percent tax rates. That would be the big difference. Uh, And finally, a letter from Dan in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He says, after listening to you for several months, I think you are the right folks to ask this question. As a man, I would like to know if it would be appropriate to purchase and carry a Hillary, quote, woman card as a show of solidarity for women everywhere. As a man who has voted Republican since 1984, I am disgusted with the way frontrunner Trump has trashed just about everyone. I may just cross the line to vote for Hillary as the reasonable candidate left. Thanks for listening, Dan. Okay, Dan. This this feels like the uh, Dear Abby portion of our um, podcast. <laughs> the woman's card. Is yeah. it right for a guy to have his See, so you I, have strong opinions. I have strong about... opinions about men and feminism. I think that being a, a male ally requires not being the center of attention in these conversations. You know, I know that Clinton is using this um, like woman's card as a fundraiser for her campaign. So if this guy supports Clinton, a great way to support her would be to buy this card. But I also am the kind of guy who doesn't like it when men put feminists in their bio on Twitter. (laughs) Like, there are various ways to be an ally. Like, I don't want my white friends to carry black cards to show support. I don't. I mean, I think the gender thing is different. Do you have them? Because, like, I could put it in my wallet. (laughs) I guess my point is this. 
A woman's card means different things in a man's hands compared to a woman's hands. So tread in this space carefully. So, yeah. So, Sam, we should probably just backtrack a sec and explain that the woman's card is actually a physical card that you can purchase. It's a fundraising tool that the Clinton campaign is using. In response to Donald Trump. Yep. In response to Donald Trump uh, saying that Hillary Clinton was playing the woman card and that if she was a man, she would only get, say, like 5% of the vote. Um, So, I mean, this was an an extremely useful and effective fundraising tool. She raised, I think it was upwards of $2 million. In three days. I mean, that's wow. amazing. Um, so Dan from Grand Rapids, Michigan, I would say you do you. Yes, if exactly. teach his own. Teach his own, but like, don't get your woman's card, go around flashing it here and there saying, women love me, right? <laughs> like, Buy me a drink. <laughs> yeah, Aww. there's a certain <laughs> level of grace to be expected in allyship. Uh, that's all I'm saying. But yeah, of course, man, do you. Your life, do you. Also, quick shout out to Kim in Bozeman, Montana, who wrote us a very nice paper letter. Real Ooh. paper. I saw it. It was beautiful. Thank Wait, you for so that. Cool. It's on the table in the in the area. Okay. Thank you for listening, Kim. And it was a hot pink card. It was really cute. Oh, I liked so it. so cool. I have to check it out. All right. That is all for mail. So let's go to Can't Let It Go, the part of our show where we talk about things we can't let go. Sam. I have a thing. Um, it's kind of a week old now, but we're going to talk about it. Uh, the White House Correspondents' Dinner was last week. Obama's final one, uh, Larry Wilmore, was the comic relief. He spoke after the president. I covered all of the parties surrounding the event for a story and a web package that was really fun to do, so I wasn't in there. So I did not actually see the jokes from Wilmore until this morning. But oh. I've been reading throughout the week how everyone was so upset about what he said and this and that and how the room didn't love the jokes at all. And I finally watched it this morning and I was like, oh, that's pretty funny. <laughs> and I think, like, I know that there was some controversy over whether he said the N-word or not. That's about, Well, he did say He it. did say or Yeah, okay. So not whether he said it or not, but, like, whether it was right to say it or not. That's a battle that I've stopped even trying to engage Didn't in. did Obama's press secretary say, like, it was cool? Yeah. And, and so here's my thing. We have to understand that the people in the room are going to see those jokes and feel those jokes differently than folks outside of the room. The people in the room are being made fun of. So, of course, they're going to cringe and, like, clutch their pearls and I don't understand why we get mad at comics for being comics they're supposed to make us uncomfortable wasn't it like the year before Luther came out right Luther's Obama's anger translator and there were so many awkward faces in the crowd like people didn't even know who Luther was and I was like oh my god I also had this feeling because I was bouncing around the pre and after parties this is the end of the era of the super black correspondence dinners. Like, mm-hmm. the attendees, the comic relief for several of these dinners, Wanda Sykes, Luther, <laughs> this year, Wilmore, like, the last few dinners had a, a black feel to them and a black vibe to them. And I wonder how much of that sticks around post-Obama. Like, the signature guests this year were the cast of Scandal and Will and Jada Pinkett Smith. That is not on accident. Mm -hmm. You don't think Donald Trump will kind of keep that tradition rolling? Omarosa? (laughs) But I'm just saying, like, these last eight years, Obama has subtly and quietly expressed his blackness and put his mark on so many parts of the presidency. Well, when he said, you know, make me some serious Tubmans, I I think... (laughs) If this material works well, I'm going to use it at Goldman Sachs next year. (laughs) 
Earn me some serious Tubmans. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That is. That, some people in the hall definitely needed a translator on that one. Yeah. Asma? Yeah, so what I can't let go, I legit can't let go because it actually happened in February. And where are we now? We're in May. (laughs) So it has stuck with me for that long. Wow. Um, But it's relevant now because this week uh, Indiana voted. Indiana is my home state. I was there. I know. Isn't it a great state? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That was a silent nod. Okay, cut that out. <laughs> okay. But um but I think the reason it has stuck with me is because it occurred in Indiana in late February where um there were two high school teams playing each other in basketball. Uh for anyone who's not super familiar with Indiana, basketball is like a big deal in Indiana and noted. <laughs> noted. <laughs> and so um, this is up in the northwest part of the state, a fairly democratic part of the state. These are kind of the excerpts of Chicago. And during the course of that game, a group of kids, uh, fans from one of the schools, started yelling, Trump, Trump, build that wall. And they had these huge Donald Trump signs up there. And they were yelling these at a school that had a number of Latino basketball players on the team. And I think the reason this stuck with me is like, I I knew both of these high schools. I played huh. sports in high school and played both of these teams. And... <laughs> Sort of this, it felt like Mean Girls for a moment. You know, I mean, huh. I take take Trump away from it. I mean, I think a lot of people have sort of hypothesized about what Donald Trump means. But to me, it was the clearest indication that Trump's candidacy has changed the culture and the conversation of what is okay to say in public. Now, kids, kids are terrible sometimes is the other thing. What about not necessarily having changed the culture as exposed? Yeah. The culture. Yeah. Ron, what can't you let go of? The eidetic image that is still bouncing around on my eyeballs of Ted Cruz utterly losing it on Tuesday. I never thought I would see that guy blow his cool because as intense as he can be and as vituperative as he can be, with those words. it always wow. seems as though he's under some kind of control, that he means to say this stuff. Vituperative. That's right. So on Tuesday, after Donald Trump had gone after Raphael... Cruz, who is Ted Cruz's father, and suggested that the story in the National Enquirer a couple of weeks ago, which had absolutely no basis, no evidence, no fact put forward, no one has been able to corroborate it. And that story was the... That his father was identified as being in a picture handing out Castro literature next to or close to or in the vicinity of Lee Harvey Oswald, the man who shot John F. Kennedy, or so at least uh, the uh, Warren Commission concluded. Anyway, this is a very old thing to dredge up, but it still resonates with a lot of the American people when you mention Lee Harvey Oswald and try to link Ted Cruz's father to this person. And it was so baseless and so clearly brought up at the very last moment on the day of the vote in order to try to link Cruz to the Kennedy assassination. And, and Ted Cruz just lost it. Now, let's be clear. This is nuts. This is not a reasonable position. This is just kooky. And while I'm at it, I guess I should go ahead and admit, yes, my dad killed JFK. He is secretly Elvis, and, J- and Jimmy Hoffa is buried in his backyard. I'm going to do something I haven't done for the entire campaign, for those of y'all who have traveled with me all across the country. I'm going to tell you what I really think of Donald Trump. This man is a pathological liar. He doesn't know the difference between truth and lies. He lies practically every word that comes out of his mouth in a pattern that I think is straight out of a psychology textbook. His response is to accuse everybody else of lying. 
It was a remarkable performance by Ted Cruz and out of control, and that's the part of it that I can't forget. You know, it's interesting. I've been thinking about that all week, too. Um, I talked to a Cruz supporter Tuesday, and he said that seeing Cruz these last few days felt just like seeing Marco Rubio in his last few days before dropping out. And the same thing happened with the both of them. Donald Trump pokes and pokes and pokes and pokes and pokes, and finally finally they just just pop. They find the little soft spot yes. and they go boop, boop. And like, I wonder, I'm sure that that's going to be his strategy against whoever is the Dem nominee. I don't know. That is the question. Tamara, what can you not let go this week? I saw a video going around on Facebook. Actually, Osma posted it. Mm. And I can't let go of it. <laughs> Keith Ellison was on ABC's This Week with George Stephanopoulos. Keith Ellison is a congressman from Minnesota. He's endorsed Bernie Sanders. At the time, I don't think he actually had endorsed Bernie Sanders yet. He was just a guest on a roundtable discussion of politics, and uh, they were talking about Donald Trump. This was back in July. Of 2015. Of 2015. So So Trump's candidacy was a little more than a month old. It was just early days. Here's the tape. Anybody, well, from the Democratic side of the fence who, who uh, thinks that, who's, who's terrified of the possibility of, of, of President Trump, better vote, better get active, better get involved, because this man has got some uh, momentum, and uh, we better be ready for the fact that he might be leading the Republican ticket next. <laughs> I know you don't believe that, but I want to go on. <laughs> Sorry to laugh. Next hey, week, you know, George, we had Jesse Ventura so in Minnesota was... win the governorship. Wow. Nobody thought he was going to win. He was right. I'm telling you, stranger things have happened. He was right. And and so he posted this on, or his staff posted it on, on his Facebook page and said, sometimes I hate to be right or something like that. But here's the thing, like... They were openly laughing at it him. It was George Stephanopoulos, And right? also Maggie and Haberman, else? right? And Maggie yeah. Haberman from the New York Times. Maggie Haberman, who is an extremely smart journalist. Yes. And they were looking at Keith Ellison and saying, you crazy. You, you don't be. mean this. You gotta be kidding. My favorite tweet from Tuesday night about all of this is from a woman named Ariel Edwards-Levi. She says, candidate who consistently led polls for 10 months wins. <laughs> All right, that's a wrap. And as always, you can find more of our political coverage at nprpolitics.org or on your local public radio station. You can also find us all on Twitter if you want to talk or send us nasty grams. And come see us in person for a live taping of the NPR Politics Podcast Thursday, May 19th here at NPR headquarters in Washington, D.C. If you're in the area or if you want to come from anywhere, tickets go on sale Monday, May 9th at 10 a.m. Eastern Time at nprpresents.org. We do not have a ton of tickets. We expect them to go very fast. So set your alarms and your Google watches or whatever. Google watch. (laughs) (laughs) But we do expect to do more of these as the election season goes on. So again, get your tickets Monday, May 9th, 10 a.m. at nprpresents.org. All right, that's it. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics and the campaign. I'm Ron Elving, setting my Google watch. (laughs) And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. (laughs) 